hello. This is uh, John at Watard First Things Foundation. This is our new conversations podcast. This is with James, Dr. James Mohabali, Chinese medicine expert now in Utah, working on new projects and talking to us about shamanism, about how does the spiritual world work as per medicine, as per Chinese medicine, and maybe it's how the whole world works. Maybe what we think of as dangerous and dark is less dangerous and dark than we think. Or even more dangerous and dark, because it's both. It's a paradox. This is happening today. Thanks for supporting First Things. This is Watar. Dr. James, uh, it's been a bit. How you been? I'm good. I'm good. I live in Utah now. I know. I know. And... Chinese medicine is still your thing. We've been, we've had great conversations in the past about um, the heart. What is the heart from the old world perspective in the East, in the Far East? Uh, we've talked about the KP effect as a sort of a medical intervention of sorts, a spiritual intervention. People like that talk a lot. Uh, when I travel and talk to folks, your name often comes up as um, influential. I'm glad. So on Substack, just this last week, we published an article. Uh, I published an article about alligator bile, crocodile bile, as a poison that in the old world, at least in the old world of Africa, but you see this also in Europe, um, that it, it's a terrible and fearful thing that it causes problems. And in this particular case, I was trying to talk about what culture is because people were taking oaths and they were taking oaths because they couldn't figure out if the bile had killed them, if it hadn't killed them. They couldn't figure out if people were hiding bile in order to use it in juju ceremonies. And basically it was a conversation about how do we tell what's true and the way that we tell what's true is by oathing giving an oath to the highest thing. Right. And, the, and the highest thing in the story that I was talking about was something like this this juju god that allowed everyone to be united under one umbrella belief. Now, I wasn't saying that um, that belief may be the best for us, but I was saying without that oath, without that ability to swear to something higher than ourselves, we couldn't create a community. So... Since then, you and I have been reading an article. Uh, it was passed around from some of our friends <clears throat> about alligator bladders in Mozambique that apparently were used to kill 69 people in a beer drinking ceremony. <laughs> yes. <laughs> beer and drinking then, ceremony. Already you've got a problem. That's <laughs> a big problem. So in the beer drinking ceremony... <clears throat> These people got sick and started to die. Uh, and the same thing happened where the officials started to say there was some juju involved, some 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 shaman shamanism. And that led us to want to have this conversation. And let me ask you this. The science in the article points to the idea, and we'll link the article, the science points to the idea that you can't actually kill that many people with alligator bladder with alligator um, um, poison. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> in fact, they point that it might not even be a thing, that people might just be dying from a, some sort of weird placebo effect, or they just put some chemicals in the beer mm -hmm. and killed them with some chemicals. So Yeah, pesticide is what it was pesticide. So let's just do this. Should people in the new world, people like me and you, but you operate deeply in Chinese medicine, should we be afraid of some shamanistic effect that involves the blessings of animal parts that turn into poison? And should we be afraid of that uh, from your medical perspective? Or is, shaman is shamanism fake? Is it not to be feared? What do you think about this? Uh, certainly shamanism is not fake. Um, so we see shamans the world over that um, they're 
impact is recognizable, you know, that um, every culture, Chinese, Native American, African, they seem to have a rain dance and they seem to believe that this rain dance has some effect. Um, so I think it would be, I think it would be hubristic to assume that all of these people throughout history really had no idea what they were talking about and that they were just primitive people. Hmm. Um, I think that goes against common sense to say that everyone except us um, isn't as smart as us. Um, but uh, one of the other arguments with shamanism is that it's culture-bound, that the effects of shamanism uh, partially derive their impact from the fact that they're mutually agreed upon. So, like... That's right. You know, if you um, if something is understood to be a symbol of a curse, and everybody in the village understands it, then the power of that communal intention, the power of that communal knowledge that this person has had like a curse bestowed upon them, could um, by uh, by the placebo effects, um, by other means, result in bad things actually happening to that person. You know, the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. That's another idea around shamanism. Um, that one is particularly interesting because it, it assumes that the placebo effect is kind of inert. You know, it assumes that it's, um, it assumes that we're kind of silly for falling victim to the placebo effect, that really, as light people, we should know better, you know, um, that the placebo is no good. But um, there's a whole realm of placebo studies. There's this guy, Ted Kapchuk, who's incredible. He's been around uh, since the 80s, um, and he works at Harvard doing placebo studies. He used to be an acupuncturist. I'm not sure how much Chinese medicine he does now. But he wrote a seminal text on Chinese medicine. And after doing that, he went and did placebo studies. And he found out some really interesting things. The most uh, famous study that he's done um, finds that uh, when you have uh, a study group uh, where one person uh, you know, both parties are getting the placebo, and then, oh, I'm sorry. Um, basically, uh, what they found is that uh, even when you tell people that the placebo, that they're receiving a placebo, that they actually do get better, right? So hmm. they even get better more so than when they're you know, when they just get the placebo. So telling somebody whoa, they're getting... Whoa. wait, wait, back up, back up. All right, hold on. So I'm getting a placebo. Right. You're so you, John, study participant, is getting a placebo. And then I'm getting a placebo. You don't know. So you're, you're like, you're the real placebo group. I think right? I'm getting whatever, I'm what, one of those funny names from one of those commercials on TV, like Florixacil or something. Or, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm getting the medicine, I think. Right. Florixacil. And you're not, and you, you and know some, you're not Somebody getting. tells me that I'm not getting the medicine. I still get better. And in fact, I get even better than you. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, clearly there's some things at play that are more subtle than, like, placebo is fake, you know. Um, we're dealing with, I mean, we're dealing with human consciousness. Human consciousness is incredibly complex. And for people that believe in a consciousness-driven reality, for people that believe that, um, you know, mankind is an active participant in the creation of the world, um, you know, this is... We're, we're getting there from a scientific perspective. The placebo studies are pointing in that direction. Do you know more about Kapschuk's studies? Did, did he, did he, has he come to believe something about, about the placebo effect that is relevant in, shaman, in shamanism? Is there some connection that he's making there that you find interesting? Um, I don't think he goes in that direction because part, uh, he is a very... Uh, mainstream oriented, you I know, see. and so part of what he's doing is opening up the mainstream to these outside concepts. So, as far as I know, I don't think he has a whole lot of public discussion about shamanism. I'm sure he knows a lot about it because he's well versed in Chinese medical history, and Chinese medical history 
has shaman up until the 20th century and even in the early 20th century um, not only do we have the imperial Chinese medicine, the academic Chinese medicine, which is what I practice, but they also have shaman, they also have priests, they have Buddhist monks, they have, um, you know, grandmas that just kind of picked up stuff along the way. Um, Chinese medical history is characterized by a plethora of different practitioners, and the shaman were a huge, huge part of it from the beginning up until the 20th century. So is the shaman then... Someone, let's follow this line and help me, who is, quote, spiritually aware of how to administer the ideas in a way that the ideas lead to healing. Whatever they're popping in their mouth is almost irrelevant compared to the art of knowing what to say. Is that what a shaman is? A, sh a shaman, a juju doctor is good at the art of knowing what to say, like almost like a magician. Um, no, so the shaman, um, I'm trying to pull up the character, uh, and you should probably include it in the podcast if you can. For sure. Um, but the character for a shaman uh, essentially involves, um, there's Chinese characters are little pictures, right? And so this little picture involves, uh, a little picture of a man and then there's like this eye and then there's another little picture of a man we'll on cut the other this side in. of the eye. We'll cut this in. Um, and so when I say I, I mean like the letter I from a Western perspective. But the idea is that we have man over here and man over here um, and there's a barrier between them. So uh, the role of the shaman from a Chinese perspective involves crossing barriers that are understood to be impassable in order to obtain information from that side of things and bring that information back here. Mm. Um, so the shaman, uh, we could say that if we're looking at like Plato's allegory of the cave, for example, we've got um, the people that are in the cave, that's us, right? We don't, uh, we're just living in this world over here on one side of the character. Mm -hmm. But then there's this guy who, or actually it was traditionally women in Chinese, um, there's this woman who goes over to the other side and goes outside of the cave and then comes back and has this incredible knowledge about how our reality works that doesn't make any sense to us. It's nonsensical to us because we're trapped in the cave, mm. um, but the results are there. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Like, this person is capable of healing because of the knowledge they've obtained from other dimensions. Um, wow. Do you, as a Chinese, and practicing imperial Chinese medicine, do you fear or slash have suspicion of um, the, sh the, sh the shaman who's gone out? Do you, do you care which shaman it is and... And for what reasons they've gone out and where they've gone when they've gone out of the cave? Do you care as a Chinese practitioner which which shaman it is? Like, you know, yeah. there's there's Osaka shamans, there's there's Seneca Indian shamans, there's Juju shamans in Africa, there's does it matter in that sense? Um I think so. Uh there is I'll use a easier example. Um We'll use Taoist priests. Um, and so there's there are Taoist priests that are understood to be, uh, you know, generally working for the benefit of mankind. Mm. And then there's Taoist priests that are uh, working for ill gain, you know, the kind of people that get involved with things like necromancy. Uh, that tends to be a really big line in, uh, in historical Chinese um, but throughout other cultures as well. When you start playing around with dead bodies, that's kind of a different thing than when you're working towards moving towards the light. Um, so with shamanism, uh, one of the problems, and this is part of where a lot of the, um, part of where a lot of suspicion comes from, is that since these are like off-world realizations, we don't exactly have a way of evaluating them. Mm -hmm. And so there is a risk that we are being led down a negative path. Um, you know, one of the things that they mention 
when you're working with this kind of thing is that um, you have to be very careful that you don't get possessed by, say, a negative spirit, you know? Um, you have to be careful that the information that you're receiving isn't somebody trying to manipulate you on the other side. Um, so there is a risk. However, I believe that most of our modern suspicions about shamanism are not actually founded on that risk, but they're founded on us kind of uh, not being able to let go of our enlightenment yeah. history. Yeah. So we tend to use, um, you know, even as Christians, we tend to use um, the idea that it doesn't make sense to our head as like a tool of, okay, well then all shamanism is bad, you know? Right, right. That it doesn't make sense is almost evidence of its evil. Right, which is not... I mean, I don't think it's fundamentally Christian. I think it's um, Enlightenment thinking. Scientific in the sense that my equation won't account for those crazy spiritual leftovers. And so in some ways, I say they don't exist because I can't account for them using my rational mind. huh? But then, but I think you're here to say, and I'm definitely here to say from my experiences, like with these alligator gallbladders that I saw a guy do some weird trick lighting paper on fire with his hand, but his hand was not over the paper. It mm -hmm. it was a magic trick, right? But feel pretty real. Here's my point. Something's going on, and I tend to believe that that something is real in that it affects the material world. It affects how I go about my material life. Absolutely. And you do too. But here's my question. I think in the Orthodox Christian tradition, some of that is off limits, not because it's not true, but because it's true in a dark way. Does that yes. sound right to you? For sure. But what I was even going further was to say that I believe that the mainstream and Orthodox perspective right now is not necessarily aligned with, um, you know, how orthodox people would have gone about it in the year 500. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that uh, the fathers were... Uh, what I always say is that orthodoxy was sprung out of a pagan matrix. And so the fathers had an understanding and a relationship with those things that they didn't necessarily write down because they just assumed that all people were coming out of a pagan matrix. On the other hand, we're coming out of an enlightenment matrix. That's right. It's, it's, it's right. We've established a different foundation that's interesting. And so that makes it relatively hard for us to acquire the mind of the fathers because they, you know, they were coming out of a different matrix. So just like, um, you know, if you go to a different country, different people are going to give directions in a different way. You know, we're still talking about the same thing. We're going to a place, but, you know, we're going to say turn left on First Street Whereas somebody from another country might say turn left at the McDonald's, you know. Uh, so they're, because they have just a different way of understanding, they're going to emphasize different things um, that it's just going to be hard for us to discern what they're talking about. And this is a really big thing that you see when trying to uh, figure out historical Chinese medicine, which is something I do a lot of. Like right. the things that they're talking about are totally, I mean... They just make statements like, oh, if you see this symptom, the person will die in three days. I'm just like, what? I don't, I can't make sense of that, you know. But you have to acquire the mind of the authors. You have to acquire the mind of the fathers and kind of see the, the circumstances from which they were coming, which I believe was deeply, deeply immersed in paganism, um, which is not a problem because I think that... Um, you know, I think they commented on the parts that were problematic. You know, I think that they, mm -hmm. like one of the things that I discovered when I was researching uh, funerals, right? We got our Chinese funeral, which is ostentatious. You know, there's lots of lots mm -hmm. of fanfare and stuff. And that is specifically something that the fathers commented on in ancient Rome. They said, hey, like funerals should not be ostentatious. You should give that money to the poor, you know? So we do see... Where the traditions are problematic, the fathers tend to draw a line. But I think the wholesale, like, 
discarding of anything that appears vaguely pagan is not actually aligned with um, the Orthodox Church. I think that's just aligned with rationalism, yeah. essentially. Which probably is something you encounter when new patients come to you. They must approach you sort of like a shaman. I, I, I know they know that you're good or they wouldn't be there. But my guess is you're probably having to knock down a lot of rational walls as per where you're getting this stuff. Does that happen a lot in your in your practice? Um, I find myself justifying myself less and less. Um, I think that uh, one of the marks of insecurity in your practice and security in your faith is that you have to explain it to everybody, you know, mm. like if I don't truly trust in what I'm doing, then everybody's going to notice that. And I'm going to spend a lot of time doing apologetics, but the more that I navigate confidently myself, the more that I truly 100% believe in what I'm doing myself, the less I find myself engaging in apologetics, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I mean, recently, um, it might just be where I'm at in my career, but I don't do the same amount of explaining. I, um, I think experience is a much greater teacher. I yeah. think that I just want my patients, my, the things that convinced me of the things that I know to be true are not rational arguments, but they're experiences that I had. Uh, healing experiences that I had, or sometimes scary experiences that I had that really confirmed that there are things that should not be played with, you know. Um, and so it's from experience that we learn. Um, I think the apologetics are kind of secondary. But that implies, too, then, you're going to need to step out into a type of dark in order to understand, which is the Plato's Cave conundrum you got to get out there so does it scale down this idea this beautiful idea you described of what a shaman is trying to do which of course we can apply to everybody but let's just stick with the shaman concept it feels like it scales all the way down to i don't know a lawyer a, a, a legal office where one lawyer is willing to go out of that cave to rethink the way they practice law and then come back and try to tell somebody or try to tell all the gray suits, I've seen something better. Let's practice law differently. Is that person being a shaman of sorts in, in the, in, as depicted in the Chinese character of the shaman? Does it count that way? Uh, potentially. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk about one lawyer that I know. Uh, so, one of the things that we can do in Chinese medicine is that by looking at people's facial structure, by looking at um, the wrinkles that they have, we can tell things about their life and we can tell things about how they use their body. So, for example, mm. these lines up here, these are like about my 20s, you know, so might have had oh, a little. I got a lot of those. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Got, I'm like so a, we like got like. Acid hound. <laughs> Yeah, 21, 24, you know, so it was a couple of rough years, right? Um, and <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> and so, you know, these lines here, they, they often tell us, um, not mine in particular, but sometimes you'll see that these are pain lines. So it tells us that somebody's in, uh, been in pain for a really long time. Those are time. the one around the eyes, guys, if you're listening on the, on the, on the pod. Those are the crow feet. Those are yeah. pain lines. Sometimes uh, they, they have to look a certain way. Um, it's a little hard to describe, but look around. You'll see it. Um, if you see somebody who's complaining about how they've been in pain for 20 years, then look at their look at the corners of their eyes. And those are going to be the ones that you're looking for in the future. So little signs like that are rational signs, uh, not shamanistic signs that give us a clue as to what people are um, experiencing and what their life has been like. Mm -hmm. So the reason I bring those up is that there are um, there's certain lines that appear in front of the ear, and these lines indicate, um, traditionally they're understood to be signs that people are very intuitive in their listening. Um, and so intuitive listeners in a pagan matrix in the old world might be understood to communicate with other dimensions. They might be understood to hear messages mm -hmm. from 
angels, whatever, you know, spirits of the dead, what have you. Um, And so what that indicates when we see these lines is people are using their hearing in an interesting way um, that is not like you and I are using our hearing. Um, And so I, uh, I knew this one lawyer who was truly incredible. He was, I mean, just to see this man work was, uh, he was an artist, he was, he was highly driven, he was the top of his game. Um, and he had these lines in front of his ear. Now, this is definitely a guy who did not go home and like get out his Ouija board and like talk to the spirits of the dead. <laughs> like, it's just right. not something he did. No, he's not. <laughs> but what he was doing was he was able to listen to the jury and able to listen to judges and able to listen to testimony in a way that far exceeded what I was able to do. And this was not a a rational capacity. Like I just have this rational knowledge that I can convey to you about the crow's feet, right? That's a rational knowledge, which is um, very left brain if you want to use that model. Um, And it can be taught Linearly, um, shaman and shamanic things cannot be taught in that same way. Um, they must be acquired by the individual. And so, this person, this lawyer, had a skill that was more right-brained. You know, something that was intuitive, something that uh, came from you know, a more fluid understanding of reality, perhaps a less material understanding of reality. Where if you asked him what did you hear that person say? You know, you, he couldn't necessarily explain why he heard that. Um, so part of the, part of the issue is that the lawyer, uh, cannot necessarily come back and convey that information that they've acquired. And then one of the important things is that again, the information is not acquired by the rational faculty. It is not a systematic information but it is a, um, it's really unique to the individual and unique to um, who they are. And that's interesting then. Would that imply that in any given setting, <clears throat> even in modernity, in the, for the light people that I love to talk about, there's probably a shamanistic-leaning person even with within every sort of cultural event, you know, at school, at work, there's somebody who's probably inclined toward the spiritual. And so when someone says, I'm more spiritual, you don't dismiss that. You don't dismiss that out of hand. No, I mean, I, I, the more that I've grown in my own faith, the less protective. I've become and the less judgmental I've become of what other people are doing and saying, you know, I assume I've, I try to assume the best of people in that. I think that, um, as Socrates would say, like people don't, people are, um, doing things because they think it's a good idea. You know, people are doing things because they think they're pursuing virtue. Um, I think for the most part, it's a safe assumption that whatever people's relationship with spirituality is, um, they're trying, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I don't, um, I don't dismiss that out of hand. Can we use this same, let's use the same structure and apply it to a priestly class, both old world and new is the idea that the priestly class would in some ways be inclined toward this this platonic ability to leave the cave is would you say in chinese history anyway i can talk about we can talk about christian history too is the priestly class the class of the levites then inclined toward that uh should they be is is that a should conversation or what do you think about that um well it's worth noting that as i mentioned in chinese culture there are priests and there are shaman And they are very different roles. Um, The shaman continues to persist even after the creation and establishment of the priestly class. Um, And as I mentioned, the shaman role is predominantly a female role um, in Chinese history, uh, at least in the very early dynasties it was understood to be a female role, whereas uh, the priest is predominantly a male role. 
I, don't, I think exclusively, but I don't want to. I don't want to say that. I think it's predominantly a male role. Um, so it's a different skill set. They're working with other dimensions, but you'll notice that um, there's a little bit more explanation when it comes to priests. There's a little bit more rational thought when yeah. it comes to priests, and so. It is still an interface with the spiritual. It is still an interface with the unknown, but um, there are some differences. Is that, do you think, as the Greeks and Romans would would imply, and a lot of Western history implies this too, is that chaos versus order? Is that sort of women and men inclined toward chaos and order? Uh and then united, they become something like royal, and they become, you know, properly integrated toward the heavenly. Does that apply in the Chinese medicine world? Because I'm using an orthodox understanding there on some level. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, so definitely what we're looking at is the coexistence of these things, creating... Uh, creating Chinese culture as we saw it um, at the beginning of the 20th century. So um, they, there are tensions uh, between them. You know, like the, uh, the imperial physicians are not necessarily a big fan of the folk physicians. You know, they, they think that the imperial medicine is a whole lot better. They think they'd, you know, all these people that are going to shamans might, might benefit from coming to us instead. You know, so it's, um, there are tensions. Um, I would hesitate to classify it as chaos and order only because it's, um, there, I mean, it, there are so many factors at play that, you know, I think, I think that each side is continually learning from the other, you know, um, like, uh, here's a great example. Um, saint, uh, she's not a saint yet, but she probably will be. Saint Olga um, from uh, Saint Olga of Alaska. She was a midwife. She was a native Alaskan, and she was thoroughly uh, coming out of the the matrix of um, you know native Alaska. She was coming out of what was very, very recently a pagan matrix, mm -hmm. but was she was a 20th century saint. So they'd been Orthodox for a little while. Um, but you read these stories from Olga, um, from Blessed Olga, and she is, I mean, she's like basically doing these, um, she's bringing patients into these unusual uh, sort of ceremonial type situations, um, you know, where tremendous, tremendous healing happens, where uh, people are... Uh, you know, able to unwind from deep, deep traumas, sexual traumas, you know, um, all sorts of spiritual problems um, in the presence of this holy woman. Um, and the method of knowing is clearly outside of the rational. The method of interacting is clearly outside of the rational. There's visions, there's all sorts of things. Mm. Um, and so... Um, her husband was a priest, you know, um, so they were they were a good team, you know. Yeah, but. yeah. I I think that's helpful. That's a helpful de description. Team. I think of team that way. Yeah. Uh, look, we're gonna get into this. You know, gonna get canceled with sexism and that there's these two opposites that you're united and women are hysterical and men are rational or whatever. I think we should stop also when I, when people say men are rational, I personally, I don't hear like that's, that's why they're so great. <laughs> I hear like, <laughs> I know that's why they're effed up, man. Like, cause what's that about? Like rational is rigid on some level. Like in other words, we've been taught to think of rational as the default good, but, I'm not so sure it is. Uh, I have I have a, a little anecdote I want you to help me with. Okay. Um, and and you can contextualize this in terms of Chinese medicine. You're the expert in there, but I think we can talk about this just in terms of life. Mm -hmm. uh, I may have told this story on the pod before. I don't think so, though. Uh, I was um, close to a family in Mali in West Africa, 
and this family would invite me over for 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 tigadigana this peanut sauce every now and then when I was in the capital. And uh, one day I went over to hang out at this family's house. This is in Bamako in the 90s, in, in Mali, West Africa, predominantly Muslim country. And no one was around. And it was odd because, I don't know, if you've ever been to Africa, there's always somebody around. Like, there's somebody around. Like, there's a lot of people. And they're around. And I was like, I wonder where everybody went. So I went in and I saw some man cross from one compound, one like mud hut into another. And I was like, maybe that's my friend's uncle. And so I just sort of meandered through the compound and got back. And it was getting dark. And I just let myself in. That's how it is in West Africa. I just let myself in. And when I went in, there was a man like huddled over like a little mini football field of, of sand. So I want you to think like 10 by 10 feet. Like, so not... Not massive, but like he had made a little football field of sand, a little rectangular one inch deep thing of sand. And he was like in a trance or something. Mm-hmm. He, I don't know if it was a trance, but he wasn't, he didn't respond to me when I came in. And I just took a snapshot of my brain. And I still have it to this day. In the sand were little candles. And then a, nearby each candle was a picture. And I only saw one or two before I got scared. A picture of a human being. Some sort of picture. And he was like on all fours kind of over it. And I don't know what he was doing, but finally, after a long pause, I had made noise coming in. He just sort of just sort of looked over his shoulder. He had really red eyes, I remember that. And just sort of stared at me. As I looked at him on the ground over this sand pit, this little sand football field, reading something. He was reading something. And I got out of there. I got nervous. I've been to a number of juju type stuff on accident and one time on purpose. And here's what happened. I got out of there and felt yucky. Mm -hmm. I went and talked to people about what he was doing. And they told me he was reading the footsteps of insects and or mice or whatever had come through that that little sand field he created. Mm-hmm. And he was reading the footwork as per the animals over some amount of time and the direction they took on his little sand map toward or away from various pictures of people. Does that seem crazy? Not at all. I mean... <laughs> What's he doing? So the first thing that makes it seem not not at all crazy is uh, the assumption that was a, a really key part of us becoming Orthodox Christians, which is that everything happens for a reason. Wow. So everything bears the little divine thumbprint, you know? And so those insects, their paths are not random. So... We have seen throughout different cultures um, that, you know, the way that birds fly, the way that insects move, they are understood to hold, um, you know, the the potential to uh, decode reality. So what he was trying to do was use a right brain method of decoding reality for these individuals. Um, That's essentially what he was doing, where... Left brain, everything has to connect A to B to C to D. Um, you know, right brain, A to Y. That's you know? right. That's right. So, no, it doesn't seem crazy. Um, and then one of the other things is that imagine that you didn't speak English or, you know, Slavonic or Greek or whatever, and you show up to uh, the 12 Passion Gospels. <laughs> <laughs> we have this picture of a dead guy. <laughs> Hanging up with a bunch of other, like, mysterious faces around. We got all these candles lit. There's a language you don't understand. Somebody's reading something. Everybody's face down. It's super weird. (laughs) And sure enough, um, people could walk in and they could get the willies, you know. If they're not used to seeing it, they could walk in and they could be very afraid 
what are these people doing? Who's this guy up on the cross? You know, what about all these other pictures on the walls? Why do they put out the candle at this point? And then at this point, you know, um, what's the significance? Um, that actually happened to me in Haiti. Uh, an evangelical family came into our house. Now they're, they're missionaries and they're nice young couple and they're coming over to visit for coffee or something. And they walked into our house and we had put the Serbian traditional blessing above the doorway, which is to burn, um, to take a candle and just burn across, mm-hmm. you know, just add a slight little burn over the doorways. And then, of course, we had icons. And when they walked in, I'll never forget, Kelly just looked up above her, saw a, you know, shadowy cross and ran out of our, <laughs> of our own house. <laughs> She said, what are you doing? It's a voodoo house. You guys have to paint that over. And why are those pictures in there? I was like, um, well, (laughs) we did that on purpose. And they were like, why would you burn a cross above the door? I said, because that's a, that's a blessing. That's, we're giving a blessing to people who come through. Right. And they would literally were nervous to come in. They finally did. And then of course, what do you think happened over coffee for the next two hours? We debated religious practice, basically. Yeah, yeah, and like that's that's a great example. And I think um, at at the heart of that, you know, I want I think people should think like, what are the mechanics of a blessing? Like, what's going on when you bless something? <laughs> you know, yeah. and this is I think this is where we can really see again that orthodoxy comes out of a pagan matrix. You know, that the things that were so obvious to them, like blessings, are not at all obvious to us. You know, and so we would we would do good to understand the things that they you know took for granted because of their historical time period. Um, so blessings don't make any sense as a light person. Like, so you like somehow put a, I mean, what, what's the scientific explanation behind a blessing? You know, there is, there's not really one um, until you get into, again, consciousness science, until you get into um, the idea that uh, the way that we interact with our world, that our, our spirit, our mind, our, our soul interacts with the world um, again, co-creates reality, you know, so we're not, um, it's not like we're just over here observing some kind of fixed thing outside of us. Um, It's a dynamic integration. And in that sense, I do create reality on some level. Not as my own God, not acting independently of creation. That's the creator. But as a created being, I participate in creation. Yeah. Um, and specifically, the, the example I like to use is Adam in the garden naming things. It's the function of man to name things. It's the mm. function of man to co-create. We're not, um, it's not the, we're not making animals, you know, but we are naming them, which is pretty important as well. Right, because the name, the name has power toward the talo, toward, toward its, the end, right? Mm-hmm. In other words... I always think about, you know, why I have my name or my daughter's names. The names, of course, don't control the destiny, but the names are part and parcel of whatever that destiny is. That's why it's important to us that we're named in the tradition of a saint, Mm. is we're trying to participate on some level with that saint, which is a really fascinating concept when you think about it. It's also not modern. Let's just be honest. And so... Is modernity breaking down in a way where the shaman becomes more possible? Oh, and not absolutely. Just, I think it's happening, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can just look at look at what's hip in California, and you can see that shamanism has been all the rage for years, you know, yeah. and that it's not going away, um, and that people's definition of shamanism. First, we were pretty thick. We, you know, we were, had pretty thick skulls, and our definition of shamanism, the cultural modern definition was primarily about psychedelics, you know, so we had, oh, the, the ayahuasca shaman, you know, the, the uh, mescaline shaman, the peyote shaman. And then we started to realize that there were people that were doing unusual things just using breath, you know. There are shamans that just use breath work. Um, I like to characterize Wim Hof as one of those people. Yeah, Wim, um, right. He's somebody who is achieving alternate things that don't make sense, things that are rationally inconceivable, using his breath, 
and his will and his spirit. And so I like to characterize whim as a type of shaman. Um, and so it's um, basically, yeah, shamanism is here to stay. And it's coming about as the breakdown of, um, of our rational system. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that we see is that um, it's hard to do these things when observed, right? So just like that guy looked over his shoulder and was like, what are you doing here, Correct. John? <laughs> his, his eyes were, dude, this is not for you. Right. And so um, one of the things that I believe happened in the 20th century is that with the increase of observation, with the fact that everything kind of fell under... Um, you know, scrutiny and was public, you know, with video, with everything, um, that we started to see a decline in things that uh, best happened in private. But now that we've kind of reached the absolute apex of that, where literally everything is recorded, yeah. you know, um, it's like yin is turning into yang or yang is turning into yin, you know, like the system is collapsing over on itself and the mystical is again becoming possible. Right. Um, it's the rebuilding of what I would argue happened with Protestant Christianity and its integration into Western culture, which was Protestant Christianity is fundamentally, if you want to argue this, and I, I do, is a fundamentally a light person, rationalistic. It's the, it's the tip of the Enlightenment spear. So we go. We think of Enlightenment thinkers as scientists, and then quickly thereafter as atheistic. Mm -hmm. But I would argue that the modern project, the Light People Project, starts with a Protestant a, a Protestantization of some bad Catholicism. What they're trying to do is root out the irrational in Catholicism for some pretty good reasons. But that rooting out led to the birth of something like the Light modernity which is fundamentally atheist because it's fundamentally materialist and if you just look at puritan churches you know a hundred years before the enlightenment what's going to happen <laughs> because you can see the church has already decided you know i don't know which spirits are good which spirits are bad we're going to keep them all out of here right and, and we're going to think a lot you know what i mean yep. we're going to we're going to descartes a lot I think. And now maybe what you get is the undoing of of that project. Yeah. Here we are. And here we are with the Chinese medicine doctor. So how would you go about... Do you think a placebo... If a placebo can heal, heal... Let's finish on this. Do you think a placebo can kill... Yeah, so there's the same thing. There's nocebo effect, you know, which is basically bad placebo, pain, placebo. Um, and yeah, I mean, people people get nocebo effect all the time. You know, if you have a bad relationship with your doctor, then sure enough, everything your doctor does is bad, even if it's wow. uh, even if you would get positive results from the same prescription from another doctor. Um, so what we what we see again is that the human things, the soft things, are important. That's why hospitals, um, you know, if you go to the wards where people spend a lot of time, you go to cancer, you go to pediatrics, they spend a lot of money decorating those things, right? They don't want you to feel like you're in a, you know, cold yeah. hospital. They yeah. want you to feel like you're in a nice place with lots of colors and lots of humanistic things and curves and no right angles and stuff like that. And so... Um, so yeah, the the placebo effect is something that people are actively using and they're gamifying in order to get better therapeutic results. Western medicine is doing this, um, and similarly, the nocebo effect um, can be problematic. Um, I do want to throw in one thing, which Please. I thought was really funny about the gallbladder. Yeah. Uh, so in the second article, um, they actually mentioned. Uh, there's a follow-up where they talk with the guy again a couple of years later. And the guy actually mentions that uh, he found out, this is a, you know, a light person. This is a, um, a university-educated um, mm -hmm. Mozambique uh, native. Uh, 
So he's got kind of that, that new world perspective. Fully, and he yeah. says that he started to suspect that crocodile bladder, gallbladder wasn't poisonous when he found out that they were exporting it to China for use as an <laughs> aphrodisiac. That tipped him off. <laughs> yeah, that tipped him off. That Chinese people, you know, we have this, there's this funny trend in Chinese medicine where everything, basically anything that's hard to get is an aphrodisiac. <laughs> so I like, see. Yeah, particularly like if it's uh, from a heroic animal, it's like, oh, tiger bone. Yeah, I mean, that's some good stuff, you know, tiger penis, even better. <laughs> so like because somebody had to kill a tiger, you know, that's that's intense. And so um, <clears throat> so, yeah, you see anything uh, that's roughly roughly phallic. You know, like the rhino horn or, you know, is actually or the, phallic. Or the horn, the consi that we drink out of it at the capy. Yeah. Because yeah, that's actually an, a toast of honor based on the king, King Vakhtang, who united Georgia and fought the Persians. So you're actually toasting, just like you said, to his virility when you drink yeah. out of the horn. Wow. wow. Absolutely. And is. so um, part of the... Part of what's really important about shamanism that um, is that they, because of their connections, because they're networked properly in the other world, they can make substances do things that they don't normally do, right? So you see, um, as Chinese medicine is emerging out of shamanistic medicine, that if you look at the functions of an herb, uh, it's a huge list. It's just like, oh yeah, this herb does this, 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 this. Um, and it's like, there's so many things. And then over time, uh, as Chinese medicine becomes more left brain and more rational in the Imperial Academy, um, there's a narrowing down of those functions, you know? So we see like, um, you know, Whereas we thought before it could do these 10 things, in reality, um, we could only reliably get it to do one thing. And when I say reliably, I mean, if I prescribe it, this happens. If you prescribe it, this happens. Oh, I like, see. So I everybody, see. everybody can get these results from this herb. The thing that makes shamanism unique is that um, they have the ability to get diverse results uh, from that same herb, right? So they might, um, you know, say that you've cultivated a particular relationship with Aster. Um, one of my teachers, he's uh, just has a relationship with the Aster family. Then, whereas I, as an imperial physician, might only be able to use that to treat cough, um, he would be able to use that for treating cough, treating digestive issues, treating skin problems, you know, whatever. Um, because he has a particular relationship with the unique vibration that is aster. So it's primarily a vibrational medicine because um, vibrations is how, we, um, how two things connect to their disconnected. So if you put a tuning fork next to another tuning fork and this one's vibrating, then they don't have to touch, right? We don't have to have that ABC contact. We can have the AY contact. Um, and so, essentially, um, with the crocodile gallbladder, I do think it's, a, it's very important to understand that there is a very high likelihood that there is absolutely nothing poisonous chemically about crocodile gallbladders. However, that doesn't exclude the possibility that you can use them to poison people. Which makes that story, which we'll link, guys, it's... Basically, it just comes out of the idea that what the hell's going on in Africa with these people dying from a potential poison that's not poison. And basically, oh my gosh, but it eludes categories then. It, this is what's disconcerting for the Westerners is then, are you telling me you can't tell me? And the answer is yes. I'm not sure I can tell you at any given moment any given outcome because there's too much dynamism, right? There are too many... There are too many outcomes. It all depends on the people and the inputs, right? Is, Absolutely. Does that, that sound correct? Yeah, and it again, we've kind of lost sight of how uh, magical and miraculous human consciousness is, you know. And I think that's uh, science is starting to come back to that and realize what's what we're capable of, what the spirit is capable of, and that matter is really secondary to the spirit. Um, 
and so you know as um as christ says in the gospels like if you have a faith of a mustard seed you can move mountains yeah. like right so we're not um again i think i think the a consciousness driven reality is much more christian than this abc reality so yeah and you're making me think so deeply about how one medicine an imperial doctor who's powerful and strong and, and makes sense and understands, he or she can use one medicine, but someone deeply invested, right, in the relationship slash the world outside of material, that person can use the same medicine for four different functions. And it has to do with their own, quote, vibration, their own soul. Which actually, if you think about it in life, just something simple as teaching. You can go into certain rooms in any given school, and everybody knows this, and you'll have a teacher that can reach four different students of four varying talents, in other words, or, or suffering from four different types of teaching uh, or learning disabilities. But one teacher can meet all four. You put those same four with four other teachers, and those four teachers can't do anything for them. And we keep thinking if all four teachers apply the same legalistic rules about ADHD, that somehow all four teachers will will serve the, those students the same way. When in reality, it's not the rules; it's the soul of the of the teacher. And some souls can meet five needs, and because of their soulfulness or spiritualness, or because of I would call it their alignment with the Holy Spirit, right? something like that does that work for you or not really uh it does uh the the holy spirit thing is just uh there's like a line that i personally don't like to cross with uh orthodox theology like where i just feel like i'm not smart enough and not well versed enough Me too. and so I get that. uh when i make the leap to talking in specific terms that's where i get worried <laughs> that i'm gonna say something wrong Good. so i Good. do think i agree with everything you said but then uh i just worry that if i use the word holy spirit that five years later i'm gonna look back and just be like man that was really wrong <laughs> so oh, man, that's, that's a that is a proper i think there's something there though when it comes to the ability to heal it has to do with not just the objective reality of the medicine, it has to do with the subjective reality of the doctor. Yeah. And here, doctor not meaning just MD, obviously. Interesting. Yeah, and so um, we see the same conflict in Chinese medical history when um, we have the Imperial Academy uh, in roughly uh, 1100 is when that was the height of the Imperial Academy. Um, and... They uh, they had a strong emphasis on herbal medicine. They loved herbal medicine the same way that now we love pharmaceuticals. Why? Because they're repeatable. They're like easy to work with. You know, it doesn't. To some extent, it's easier to abstract from the the personality and the soul of the prescriber because it's just an herb. You know, it's an external, mutually agreed upon substance. Um, so what you see is that before. The Imperial Academy, acupuncture was flourishing. Acupuncture was doing great. Um, and then the Imperial Academy did this thing called um, exhaustive investigation, where they, you know, scientific method, they took like 100 people, they needled a point on 100 different people, and they saw, okay, does this point work for this condition? Uh, and they came up with a list. They said, all right, you know, this point has this function. It's good for these conditions. In like, you know, 99 out of 100 people treats this condition. We're good. Um, but what you also saw at that time period was there was a simplification of acupuncture and there was a dramatic reduction in the use of acupuncture and there was a dramatic reduction in the perception of what conditions acupuncture was yeah. capable of treating. And so whereas before uh, acupuncture was a complete medicine, you know, what we see from the Imperial Academy onwards is a gradual decline in acupuncture, where it actually had to be revived multiple times, you know, throughout the Ming Dynasty, throughout the Qing Dynasty. Um, and by the 20th century, it was 
it was almost extinct um, because these rationalistic paradigms were prevailing even in China. Um, and a you know, thousand years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And so China has light people too, you know? Yes, um, that's right. That's right. That's so interesting. Um, but Tell so uh, as a result, we, um, in order to bring back acupuncture, which we've seen happen in the 20th century, uh, we kind of have to broaden out our understanding again, you know, where um, it's because of interest in acupuncture that people are starting to um, tune into kind of different uh, perspectives on uh, consciousness and different perspectives on like, just like with Ted Kapchuk, you know, it's from his interest in acupuncture that he said, like, well, we need to look into placebo. We need to look into the role of human consciousness in this whole thing. Um, and so it's, um, we've seen this problem before, and we're kind of coming to another resolution of it. Man, that's so helpful. Tell us, because whenever I have you on, someone's always like, how do I get a hold of him? I want to go to him. Yeah. I want to talk to him. Um, where are you? Do you want to tell us that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it feels like every time I'm on, I have a new project. Um, but so this is this is a big project. So I'm in Utah now, and um, I've been uh, revitalizing my own business. I've been revitalizing my own relationship with the medicine, you know, um, and I've uh, reevaluated a lot of things. And so what I am personally doing is trying to offer people uh, the same tools by which I've revitalized my own life. Um, you know, I have, it's been a great year of personal transformation. And so there's uh, two main ways that I'm doing that right now. The first is targeted at elite clientele. Um, so, you know, few and far between the one percenters. Um, and that is a concierge medicine where I go to you. And I deliver uh, once a month for four months. We have two full days together where we do hours of treatment. We do hours of therapeutic exercise. We talk. We process. We have a whole program that's structured specifically for those people. Um, now, part of the reason I'm doing this is that um, I want to be able to offer these tools to everybody. And so the the way that um, I see forward is that by serving the 1%, we can eventually develop formats and develop structures so that we can bring these innovations, we can bring these transformations to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other project that I'm focusing on, which is more locally oriented, is um, I'm focused on particularly sales professionals in Utah, um, The which what I want to do is I want to give them, again, the same tools of transformation so that they can unlock their potential, they can succeed in their career, they can realize significantly that their mental health, their spiritual health, their uh, traumas that are unprocessed, that are still kind of bearing with them, um, their physical health, all play an impact in their ability to perform well and to do the thing that they want to do, which here in Utah is very often support their families. You know, a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot mm -hmm. of young men in sales that have young kids that, um, you know, by allowing them to do their job better, um, I, you know, I want to make a positive impact in mm -hmm. my community. Um, and so that's another uh, program that's multimodal. So it's not just acupuncture. It's not just herbal medicine. It's not just, you know, therapeutic exercise, Qigong, uh, dietary stuff. It's the whole package. It's everything. Um, because I believe that, again, these tools have been an incredible vehicle for me. And, um, you know, particularly this past year has been, I've really dug deep into my own tool set. I've really used my own tools on myself. And it's made a really big difference for me. Um, so those are the two main projects that right I'm working on. on. But uh, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna talk with me, I'm uh, I'm available to talk. I uh, I always love networking, you know. Um, and so I'd love to meet with people. Um, you know, mm. I do uh, I do offer uh, remote consultation. Um, unfortunately, what I've realized is that. If I spend an hour on the phone with somebody, I do have to charge them for it <laughs> as much as I hate it. Well, um, believe me, I get it. 
but yeah, I do have uh, smaller fees that are not for the one percenters. So yeah, if you want to talk, if you want to learn about your health, if you want to learn more about Chinese medicine, if you want some direction, um, I'm here. You know, I uh, I love meeting people. I love networking. I love getting to know um, all of your different listeners, my different listeners. Back when I had the show, um, it's really yeah, great right. to to connect. That's right. Well, that's how you got started with with me was through your excellent podcast. So, all right, we'll link stuff. We'll link anything and everything so that yep. we're getting a little crew of beautiful people following us. So uh, it helps. Well, here's the thing. There's, there's, there's zero sum people out there who think like, well, if they donate to this, they won't donate to that. If they buy that, they won't buy this. I don't really think that's how things work in the world. I think things grow because they're beautiful. We shouldn't worry about who gets what. Yeah. So. I just hope this thing spills over into all types of places. So Absolutely. Yeah, and so you can find me at um, uh, drjames.solutions is my new website. So drjames.solutions. Well, thanks. I'm telling you, that shamanism stuff, uh, really informative when it comes to this new world, old world concept. You helped us today. Right on. Uh, we shall stay in touch. Absolutely. Come to Utah sometime. That was a good guest. There's moments when I'm getting things, understanding them, and moving on in a way where I won't move on without that little bit of information. In other words, I like to call James's stuff sticky gnosis. I made that up. Sticky gnosis. It's knowledge that sticks. And I think it's because it's born into and born out of, it's pushed into and born out of like truth or reality. Guys, 50 of you, 50, that's what we want, 50. 50 new recurring donors, $5, $10, $20. Because when you click on our website, www.first-things.org, you realize, wait a minute, these guys are service-oriented crazy people who go to tough tough neighborhoods where there's alligator gallbladder poisons and they help oh the meek those who christ calls the poor but we're really the poorest of all because that's how things work those who serve become wealthy so we're thankful because we are impoverished but when we go it's beautiful and hard and malarial and typhoidal and our guys need your help. 50 of you recurring donors before January 1st. That's the push. See you soon. And when you become a recurring donor, don't forget, you get a live look in on Inside Baseball at First Things. We meet last Tuesday of every month and we chat about lots of stuff, including our Substack articles. Peace out. Love you. More on that soon from Water.